0: I'm Dr. Jill Weiner. I'm a white woman, a doctor, a meditation teacher, a tapping practitioner, a writer, and I'm an aspiring anti-racist, an identity which I must constantly strive towards, work on, and reevaluate. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of women and men in all aspects of the anti-racist space, from healthcare to spirituality to criminal justice, to provide a nuanced, honest, and educational examination of systemic racism. I am here today with Bianca Wilson, who is the co founder of Say Space, which is a, a diversity and inclusion consultancy. She's also a friend of mine who I met on a meditation retreat back in 2016, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's just a fabulous, fabulous woman. And I'm Bianca, I'm so glad to have you here. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited, honored. Um, awesome. So I think, you know, when we first met, I was not on the journey at all, not on the anti-racism journey at all. I had just gotten back from my teacher training and, and we didn't talk about it very much. And I don't know if that's just because I wasn't open to it or that just wasn't something that collective consciousness was talking about in the spaces where we were together. But you've been doing so much incredible work in this space. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that work has evolved over the last few years? Because when I met you, you were in like a corporate I was. Yes. Yes. I
1: call that colonized 2.0, Bianca, but it was, (laughs) you know, it's all of our, it's all of our journey. Um, But yeah, you did meet me in 2016. I was still working for um, an ad agency, very prominent ad agency in Los Angeles. And 2016, I was starting, you know, I wasn't a lot of journeys, right? Like I was, into deepening my consciousness we were meditating so i was really getting into that um really getting into that self personal development kind of work and um my passion for i wouldn't have called it diversity and inclusion then i would have just called it either social justice or just straight racism <laughs> um, and being anti-racist was like not a term that had been like coined or popularized popularized yet um, so really it was like, I was just passionate about race. And so in working at this ad agency, there was just, um, there was a, there was a gap. There was a gap of what was being talked about, what was being acknowledged for people of color, particularly black employees. I watched tons of friends leave. I watched employees um, get gaslit. I watched the microaggressions happen. And I was very, um, forthcoming when those things happened to me, but I noticed that not everyone was. So around that time, actually, 2016, 2017, um, is when I started. So I wasn't paid. So this is important. I was not paid to be doing diversity inclusion work, That that was not, um, my job description. It wasn't what I clocked in for. I was paid for something totally different. And I was just like, this is a passion for my, of mine. It was one of my my minors in college. I minored in race relations. So on top of being a black woman, I actually like intimately knew history and systemic the the systemic issues. So. I started to slowly incorporate that passion into my work um, and teamed up with a couple other people at the agency who, again, none of our paid jobs, but started looking at like, how can we bring in more initiatives? How can we start having this conversation be more prominent? So we were one of the first we were kind of the core group to, to start it going, to, to start bringing in speakers, to start bringing in um, um, more events, which just sounds now looking back, oh my like, God, that was. Just, so weird. It's just so weird to speak of it that way. Yeah. Um, and then I was part of creating one of the first workshops. Now, back then we called it, it, it had bias in the name, which is like not a term that I even unconscious bias is just not a term that I even really use now. Um, but I was part of the, the team who had, who, who created it, who built it. And eventually I was trying to have conversations with the company of like, I can't do both. And this is an experience that a lot of people of color, a lot of black people have and this company. I can't do my job that you're paying for, paying me for on top of the emotional labor of bringing in this other stuff. Like it is, that is emotional labor. I don't have the capacity. I work 13 hours a day already with this job. It's just, it's too much. So they were unwilling at the time to put the resources, to make a position for it um, to pay me more <laughs> for doing this work. And so, you know, that was a sign for me of like, I, have I've reached the point that I've needed to reach in my journey with this place. It's time for me to move on. And that's when in 2018, beginning of 2018, I bounced, uh, my best friend, who's also the co-founder who also worked at the agency left a few months later, and then we created Safe space. And it's really been a journey as to what say space started from to what it is today really has been a journey which and it's perfect because I think for anyone like the inner work that you do then reflects into the work that you're doing out in the world mm-hmm. so it's interesting to see the pro- the 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 progression because I'm like oh that's in direct <laughs> correlation to what I I'm doing and what the world is experiencing
0: yeah it's interesting I have my own little mini version of that as well like with meditation and and, and then also with Ray stuff as well the things that I was thinking about and talking about. So you're in, and that's my little, little tiny little bubble level of that. Um, so, okay. Why, why do you not use the word unconscious bias? I I wanted to ask you about that. I know it's a term you don't like to use. I haven't heard anyone else say that though. So please educate me. It's not,
1: um, it's not wrong or bad. It's, it's not because we do have, it. we literally have biases in our brain that are unconscious to us that are, um, filtering how we behave, how we speak, how we act. The problem for me is when we use that in conjunction with the work, like, like that's all you need to focus on. We, just, we gotta get some unconscious bias training, like as if, as if admitting you have the bias substitutes the action that's required around it. Cause I often, my experience has been like, we all have it and it's okay. Like for me, it's just, that is um, an intro conversation It's, um, I always say this white people love facts, (laughs) love facts. So for me, it's like, okay, well, this is an intro point to having this conversation because it's just like a fact, like you have biases, but most people stop there. It's like, okay, I, I, you know, I'm not that bad of a person. Everyone has these biases. I also think unconscious bias for me personally is a palatable way for white people to hear it's racism. Hmm it's racism. That's what it is. And we're all racist. So you have racist, you are not a racist, you have racist tendencies. And so when we say unconscious bias, to me, that gives like a, almost like a free for all, not a free for all. Um, like sugar coat. Yeah. It's like a sugar coat. It's like an easy way out versus like actually dealing with the emotional impact of like, wow, I am deeply ingrained in, racist, in, in in a racist structure, and racism runs through me it through through me, in and out of me. Unconscious bias is kind of like a checkbox. Okay, mm-hmm. I identify that. I'm good.
0: Yeah, that's so important. That's a, it's a. I mean, it, it, I think that brings up a lot of subtleties too of of this conversation and of this movement and of this need. Um, because there are, are a lot of check the box things. And another thing you were mentioning is like being paid for your, I think you said emotional labor. Is that the, the term you yeah. use? Yeah. Like I mean, that's a huge thing with with white people asking black people to do Like for people that are listening. I'm not telling you this, you know this. People that are listening or watching, like black people called upon all the time to do things for free, in, especially in the diversity and in, in, in equity space. Um, mm-hmm. And it's like, I just read this incredible article last night. Uh, there's no such thing as as, um, as as a white ally. Basically, the notion that like, that term is crazy, because white people created racism. So we're not the allies helping the black people get rid of it. Like, it's not their job to get rid of it. It's our job to get rid of it, our job meaning white people. And it was just like, yes, like, why don't why haven't, why don't we all talk that way? You know, I mean, we, we do to some extent, but about the term white ally, I think it's, or, or white partner or white accomplice. It's the same thing. I mean, it's not, it's not like, Oh, I prefer one or the other in her context. It was, it was beautiful. Um,
1: yeah, you have to send me that. Cause I'll I, that, and I'll
0: put the article. Um, yeah, it's, it's a woman who's like a, an attorney and a, um, she's not like a professional writer or anything. And she sent it to yeah. me on Facebook, and I just found the message request and I like, hadn't seen it. So um, it's gotten, i put it on my, my Facebook group too, my anti-racism Facebook group, and it's gotten a lot of great discussion. Um, so, so this emotional labor, and I get this in the, in the meditation space, people calling me all the time from like Deloitte, asking me to come do a meditation talk for free, because uh-huh. meditation isn't valuable. But mm-hmm. we check our box and say that we're doing wellness so yep. and, and as I'm starting to get into the anti-racist space with my partner uh, Maisha Claiborne like Claiborne like people are like also expecting it to be done for free I don't have you know like it's part of my reparations it's okay for me to do stuff like that for free but the the fact that people expect that anti-racism work is just one of those things that people should just do without being compensated for is is interesting do you have thoughts about that? so many <laughs> so many thoughts i feel like i could go on a,
1: a monologue about this but you know it, it what it brings up for me is um also this con- like the intersectionality concept because it's also rooted in capitalism so when you're talking about capitalism you're talking about a structure that actually really does just does not value um human capital it doesn't value it. it will always be profit over people so when you start bringing in conversations um, paradigms really, um, or requesting or trying to push forward these literal paradigm shifts, you're talking to, um, centuries worth of structures that are not built to hear that. And the people that that exist within it, like they're not built to hear that. So it seems like an extra bonus because you're existing within this capitalist structure. I'm like, well, they don't understand, um, the need for emphasis on the people. So that racism, right? Meditation, all these kind of wellness things are like this extra, this extra plus on, t- on top of what the real agenda is, which is about profit. Mm-hmm. So there's like that piece. And then there's the, the piece around. So I'm like, you know, this it, as being a tapping practitioner um, and in meditation, it, it's a conversation with both, but like the fight, flight, or freeze response. And mm-hmm. so, uh, me and a a really close friend of mine, were doing a year long study of my grandmother's hands by Resma Menachem, which is a fantastic read. I recommend it for everyone. I think you're reading it. So, um, part of that is looking at what fight, flight, or freeze looks like beyond, I think people have these really dramatic ideas of what these things are like, like traumas, like I was in this car crash and it, like, I have to do all this work. Like, that's not necessarily what trauma always is. And so the the conversation around race is traumatic. And if you're reading this book, so you know, so when I see these responses from, from corporations or, or, or they're like, oh, we don't want to pay, or we're, we're not comfortable with that language, or we don't, um, we don't really want to do these actions to me. That's a, that's a trauma response. So I have to put it in the context of it's resistance and it's within this capitalist structure, but it's also a trauma response. And that's either the the freeze of like, I I don't know what to say, or it's the flight of I'm going to distance myself as far as possible from the discomfort of the conversation of race, AKA, I'm not going to put resources. We're not going to put like, we're not going to really go deep into that. So for me, it's like this lay, this very layered situation that's happening of capitalism and um trauma and just resistance (laughs) on top of the fact that like for a lot of people unfortunately it's it's new so they're just like overwhelmed
0: yeah and it's also like okay this country was built on free labor from black people like (laughs) let's stop (laughs) let's actually stop doing that let's actually pay if we're if we're going to be asking and doing those things and and putting the responsibility on them let us at least pay them well for it. Um, Can you talk about, oh, did you have a comment? Yeah, it
1: just brought up like this question that I kind of have in my mind of what does it mean for companies? Like, what does it, what do they make it mean to um, put money towards these things? Mm. And examining that trigger and that story of like, if I put this money towards this initiative, like, what does that bring up for me? instead of just like being like, just having the reaction of we're not going to do it without exploring it. Like for me, I'm always asking the questions. Like, I don't know, I don't know the answer. I don't know what has you be blocked,
0: but that just is what came up for me. Of Like, what is that? It, yeah, I, it's like people are like, I'm doing all this. I want to do it. And then it's like, when it comes down to doing it, they back away. I mean, I had the same thing. I signed up for an anti-racism retreat in the spring of 2019. I've talked about it a bunch on, on this uh, podcast and I did not want to go. Like I really tried to find excuses to not go because I was so scared of what I might discover. And I was like, what do they want me to become an activist? I don't even know what that word even has to mean, but in my mind, it meant like someone like marching every day and God knows what, but, I was so scared and I made myself go because I knew that I needed to do it, but I was like looking for any way out. And so I think a lot of people recognize there's a problem, but then when it comes down to like putting yourself on the line a little bit, that's when it, does that sound? Yeah, no, it does. And I, again, I put it in
1: the framework of, um, of white body trauma, like that, you know, I think it's really easy to intellectualize and and all of that is is valid, but as you know, from reading, um, Ressma's book it's that's what white trauma is is how do I distance myself from this discomfort because the body sees it as dangerous how do I protect myself from this conversation I, I my body is not ready to metabolize that type of conversation
0: can you talk about white trauma because you know there there are a lot of people who if, if I were to talk about that I think without being super well informed and understanding my audience and I would get a lot of pushback, especially, I think, from a lot of people of color being like, no, 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 you're, you're not traumatized. Like, we're the ones experiencing the trauma. So can you yeah. talk about that? Because I, I, I've my understanding of it, I totally resonate with, but I want it to be very clear to any Black people or white people listening what you mean by white trauma.
1: Yeah, and I'm by no means going to say I'm an expert on it. I very much gather a lot of my work from from Menakem, and I'm like very deep into it. So all of my thoughts, like I give to him. So this is not Bianca. This is very much his work. This is very much what I'm even learning and having to discover for myself. Cause when I heard that frame of white trauma, I'm like the fuck, like <laughs> that is rude. <laughs> but, but understanding, cause you know, um, I think it's really easy when you just see it as, um, I don't want to say like, oppressor and victim that is act that that is real but what has someone be an oppressor it isn't just arise out of nowhere and so what i'm discovering and learning in this in the book and in the um, the year long study is that white body trauma has been passed down from other white bodies so you think even before slavery in the 14 15 1600s people fled from these highly oppressive situations um, in these in these various countries. Like they were fleeing because they were experiencing violence, horrendous violence. When you think about the, even the medieval times when they would have people in, the, in, in public venues and streets hanging or dismembering or pulling limbs apart, yeah. that is highly, tra- that is traumatic. And that lives in the body. And instead of white bodies metabolizing and understanding how to heal that trauma, not only does it get passed down from generation to generation, so that violence is within them, that trauma is within them, then instead of trying to um, heal it on that deeper root level, they um, try to dismiss it, get rid of it by traumatizing others, by oppressing others as a means of minimizing the pain and trauma that they're experiencing. It's what Resma calls dirty pain of blowing that pain onto someone else so that they don't have to experience it. So when you put it in that framework, you're like, all of this is dirty, is dirty pain. It's dirty pain of white people trying to, um, de-traumatize themselves by passing on that, by, by traumatizing others and minimizing that pain pain. So that's when we say like white trauma, white body trauma, it's very different than black trauma and what Resma calls bodies of culture. Um. And so when I say like white people are traumatized, that's the
0: context. It's very different, but it's still, it's still trauma. That's beautiful. And I, I really look forward to diving. I had the book, the book <laughs> ordered for so long and I got it. So I'm so excited to, to, to dive in this dirty pain concept though. I, I'm, I'm, I think that's, just so well-described. I've also heard of white trauma in terms of like, even as in this lifetime, you are being raised to be a good person, but then you see all these other things and it's traumatizing to your, like like almost like a moral injury of like, wait, that doesn't quite correspond with... that goes against what I think I'm being taught, yet I'm still seeing it and I'm seeing people I love who care for me propagating it. Is that, yeah. does he talk about that at all as well or That's definitely, Definitely, I mean, he talks about, um, first of all,
1: the collective trauma, right? Like there is, there's the individual, but then there's the collective wound that we're all experiencing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on top of that, there is, I, I don't remember the phrasing for it, but it, like what you just said, the kind of secondary trauma, um, where you are watching it and experiencing it and the body sometimes doesn't know the difference. Like it's experiencing as, it's, as if it's its own. Um, so you have both the, the collective, you have then the generational that's in your body, and then you have the actual um, viewpoint that you're either watching it or you're participating in it. Yeah. So either way, there's trauma happening and white bodies are either metabolizing it and figuring out how to deal with it or they're not. And they're suppressing it and allowing it to come out um, and be expressed in these other harmful ways. And it's harmful not only for others, but for themselves, because then they are validating that. And there's no actual healing. They're actually continuing to emphasize that that is what needs to be done to minimize the pain. Yeah. So those actions continue. You see it, that's what's happening with police officers. That is, that is trauma if I've ever seen it. That is trauma. Not only are they being trained as if they are going to fucking Iraq when really they're just like driving down the street. But yeah. then you also have the, what he talks about, like the blue body trauma, like what police officers are storing in their bodies. You know, they do something on a daily basis. What are they doing to metabolize the trauma of either what they're seeing or what they themselves are doing? So it's it's deep. <laughs> yeah. It's not as easy as having like a DNI playbook, a diversity inclusion playbook, where we just check off how many black people we're gonna hire. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that, but, like, the work is much deeper, and I'm, like, so grateful for Resma's um, body of knowledge around this to, like, really give that framework, and hopefully, like, it somehow makes its way into all these different sectors.
0: Yeah, that's, that's amazing. It's it's interesting to hear that, because, I mean, I think, I think for me as a white person recognizing that racism isn't an individual label, it is still in some ways, but, like, no matter what, you are part of it because you are part of this culture and this society, that disarmed me enough to like start digging and to to realize that <clears throat> that it was something that everyone has and participates in and is, is a part of. So yeah, I think this notion of white trauma, not to like make violent white people feel better about it, but to just understand that like, there's a history behind all of it. Yeah. History lives on as, as yeah. well creating new history and propagating it.
1: Yeah. And, and I think what you're bringing up is important around the compassion piece, right? Like there's so much grief and there's so much anger and defensiveness and all of the emotions that come with this conversation. And it makes sense. And what I feel like is so missing is the compassion piece. Yeah. compassion for yourself and, and it's obviously it's hard it's like why would you have compassion for this person who is so blatantly taking life harming life continuing these oppressive actions and structures and beliefs and i'm not saying you have to just be like i'm just going to be compassionate but like when you have the framework of kind of what i'm talking about like you can have a little uh, iota more compassion of like okay we're all as much as we're in this um, racist structure, this capitalist structure, this, this, the structure of white supremacy, it's not out of nowhere. It's not like one day someone was just like, I'm going to build a structure of white supremacy. Like, no, it's like deeply ingrained in our bodies and we keep passing it on from body to body.
0: Yeah. I'm, I'm um, also reading a uh, stamped from the beginning by Ibram Kendi now. And it's yeah. like, I mean, in the 1860s is where I'm at in the book right now. The arguments were never like acknowledging the full humanity of black people. It was either like they should still be slaves, or they shouldn't be slaves because, but they should go back to Africa, or they shouldn't be slaves, but they should, but they're like dull and simple, and and will always be that way, and we're superior. But like, like the arguments that got us out of slavery, not us, the the, com- the country that ended slavery. Um, none of them were actually, like, realizing the full humanity of Black people. Like, Correct. that wasn't that long ago. And so, I mean, slavery, yes, but even, like, the people who were anti-slavery were not these, like, models of anti-racist. No. It wasn't even available no. to that. So, what'd you say? Don't get me started on that, but yes, totally. So it's like, how did we ever, like, A, how was that even a thing that, that, that was that bad? But, like, there is so much to... Dig through and heal from um, on so many levels. Like the, it, it's it's, you know, very very mind blowing. I think. Um, I would love to talk to you about safe spaces because um, I actually thought when we were talking by phone that your organization was called Safe Space, which makes sense to me. Um, And I've heard different, different thoughts about safe spaces and I have my own, but my, this is not my time to share my own thoughts. I'd like to hear your thoughts. um, Why you chose the name say space for your company and and what you think, just your thoughts in general about safe spaces. Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting because
1: I think context is really important. I don't ever usually think there's just a blanket statement for everything, everything everything is nuanced. So it's not necessarily that I'm against the phrase, just like I'm not against unconscious bias, I think it's a real thing. I'm not against safe spaces, it's just like what context are we using it in? So when we came up with the name or, um, yeah, when we created the name safe space, it was very much rooted in, like we were very intentional about not saying safe, Because our, at least my experience, I am always very clear. This is my experience. In my opinion, it's not a blanket statement. It's not a fact. My experience is that it's often used by white people when they are talking about wanting to talk about race, like that there is something to be protected. And my thought process, and again, I saw Resma say this somewhere else. I I don't remember where now, but what right do you have? to request a safe space when Black and brown people, particularly Black people, have never been safe. It has never been safe for us. What does that even mean? And I, I question them, like, what does it mean to, to have a safe space that you're just not uncomfortable? Like, what does that actually mean? And, and, to, and when we get to the bottom of it with some people, it's like, well, I don't want to be attacked. I'm like, well, what does being attacked mean?
0: Right.
1: So when you start asking the questions deeper and deeper, at the end of the day, it's this resistance to being uncomfortable. It's this resistance to actually experiencing the different emotions that come up around this. So no, I'm I in that context, for white people, I'm not here for safe spaces. I am okay with it when we're talking about particularly black bodies and where they can feel at home, where they can feel safe to bring their full selves, because that is just not an experience. And it's not to say when white people are having these conversations that they should be quote unquote attacked and that there's no room for their perspective. But I question what their idea of safe is. Mm -hmm. For black people, it's like, no, they they are constantly living in trauma. They're constantly often living legitimately in dangerous situations. Um, Even showing up now in, in these virtual spaces for work where cool, they see the whole company and there's five black people out of 400, that's trauma. Yeah. That is traumatic, so how can they have spaces outside of the white gaze where they can actually talk about what their experience is, where they can actually heal and support one another so again, it's just it's the context, it's not just a blanket like I don't agree with it, it's just how are we using it?
0: yeah, that's so powerful um um oh, I had a thought, I'm forgetting the thought, so we'll just move on, uh so not move on, but continue so um what are your, what are your thoughts about, um, um, all right, I'm back. So, uh, white people like insisting on this need for safety. And then like, I've heard black people say that they don't ever feel safe unless they're only around other black people. Like that's the only time they truly feel safe and white people have this need for black people to make them feel comfortable about race. Can you talk about that a little bit? Cause it's totally backwards, but it's a thing. Yeah. Um, All right, let me pause. What's backwards is white people expecting black people to make them feel comfortable. Not right. the part of black people not feeling safe around other white people. That is understandable.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would always just turn it again, back to the white person to ask like, well, what's uncomfortable? Yeah. Like what, what is the discomfort? Cause I don't want to assume what your discomfort is, but like, what is it? And then you, you know, work backwards from there. And again, rooting it back in this idea of trauma, it's not a blanket statement that every black person feels that way. You know, it's not a blanket statement to say every black pe- person feels, um, not safe around white people. Some people have different levels of how they process trauma. I know that, and at the same time, some Black people might not actually be connected to their bodies enough, where they're where they're recognizing that there is trauma in the body. So, it's very it's very complex. And I I personally don't want to speak on behalf of everyone on my behalf of my race, but I know for me, from my personal experience, having grown up in white spaces, going to middle school, going to high school, um, going to college in very wealthy, very white, very privileged spaces, I know that when I look back and I kind of do some like soul history work and I tune into my body, I know that when my 11 year old self walked into the prestigious LA um, middle school, going from a predominantly black and brown elementary school, I know that my little body disconnected. When I came onto that campus and I was like, what? I disconnected. And I think while part of me, and this is a little bit layered, I know that um, it's a little bit twofold. So when you think about your nervous system, right? And like the extent to which it can, the capacity of it. I think for one, for me, I had more, I actually did have more capacity to be in that space because My mom's side of the family has a lot of white, like there's a lot of whiteness there, (laughs) literally. Like we have a lot of white people. We have family members who pass for white. And then on my dad's side, my dad has been in white corporate America his entire life. So if you think about it, his nervous system had expanded in some way. So then he passed that on to me. So we're working with two things, right? So I probably had a higher capacity to deal with that. At the same time, I actually just like pieced out from my body because I was like, this is a lot. So when I think about that and I come back to it, I'm like, yeah, in some ways I'm okay going in and out of white spaces. But when I tune into the trauma of it, there are situations when I look back and I'm like, oh my God, like I did not, I actually, if I were to revisit it, probably did not feel safe in that situation. But because I was so disconnected from my body, I had no idea. So now in doing my own decolonizing work and doing my own kind of somatic abolition, I can recognize the moments when my body actually does not feel safe. But it's not about not putting yourself in those situations. Although that is also a thing for me with boundaries. How do you, how do you learn to um self-soothe and also expand the capacity of your nervous system so it's a it's a balance of the boundaries as well as the healing so for me i'm like i don't have a i don't have like a straight answer it's really like tuning into my to my body and being like i feel okay in this i i feel okay and in other moments i'm like i don't feel okay and i'm either gonna remove myself or i'm gonna put up some sort of boundary
0: um That was a lot, I know. Oh, it wasn't a lot. There's a word that you use that I wanted to ask you about. Somatized abolition? Oh, yes. So so that's what Resma calls his work, is somatic abolitionism, which
1: is, um, you know, somatic is body. And then abolitionism is like the liberation of oneself from these oppressive structures and systems. And we're talking about a lot of layers of abolitionism. Um, So it's like freeing the body. How do you free the body of the chains of trauma and the oppressive actions and the intern and really the internalized white supremacy. Like that's really what I am on a journey of like, wow, I have very seamlessly embodied literally white supremacist thinking, white supremacist beliefs without even knowing it because we exist in that structure. So what does it look like to liberate my, my thinking, my body, my beliefs, my communication, how I run my business, so it's it's incredibly deep work, and to tie it back to what you were asking about um, the the role, I guess, or the the need for white people to make black people feel safe. It's just again, no, what
0: does that black people to make white people feel safe?
1: Yeah, like what do, what does safe mean? I don't. Uh, to me, I'm like, what does that mean? I don't. I don't understand. I don't. I actually don't understand. And so I asked those questions, and then we start getting deeper. It's like, oh, okay, we're just working with some deep level of like <laughs> colonization here, which we all have. Yeah. You know, we're all deeply colonized.
0: Can you talk more about that as a Black woman, what, what white supremacy culture is like in, inside of you, like that internalized racism? Yeah. Like, what do you mean by that? Because I've heard people talk about that before, but I think for someone listening who hasn't heard that, like being like, wait, Black people are connected. Yeah, racism, you know, like, like that can be a big like, what? So will you please share more?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, it hits everyone very differently. Like I, again, I can only speak for myself. I'm not going to use this as a blanket statement, but for example, hair. Let's talk about hair. For most of my life, my hair being in these white environments, I would relax my hair. I would straighten it. I would do everything that I could to have it look like the um, the ideal, right? Like our ideal person. I mean, it's kind of shifting now, but is the the Eurocentric beauty like like Let's talk. And I've learned this, and I and I want to um, acknowledge, a course, that I'm in. It's called Reclaim um, by Louisa Duran. She's an incredible anti-racist educator. So she actually set this framework up, um, and I just want to make sure she's accredited for that. But When you think about it, it's like these beauty standards, for example. And for me, it was, we talked about this right before the call, the straight hair, um, it being sleek. And and you think about white supremacy, what does that mean? Like, what do these beliefs look like? It's very linear. We talk about like A plus B equals C, facts, um, sleek, straight, all these kind of like smooth, but then you talk, you talk about like black hair. It's like, out of control it's messy it's kinky like all these kind of associations with not being beautiful so when i think about something tangible like that because if you talk about internalized white supremacy in this broadway it's like very conceptual and like heady and like what the fuck does that mean but when you talk about it tangibly like beauty yeah i as my journey went along and i was my hair literally started falling off it started breaking off and i my body was starting to like rep- repel all of these beliefs that I had. And so I watched my journey and I cut all my hair off. And I, when my hair started to grow to what it actually is, I had to really deal with, oh my God, I'm having these panic attacks because I might not be seen as beautiful. I might be seen as too black. Will people accept me? How will how will the world engage with me now that when my hair is straight, a lot of times people are like, what are you? Are you mixed? Are you you know, are you, um, Indian or you native, anything to disassociate from blackness. And now, you know, my hair has been like this for years, but I had to really come into like owning that blackness and, and removing and healing from the white supremacy that I had absorbed, which is like, no straight and sleek is what's beautiful. And it distanced myself from my own blackness and in, in embodying the hair, it's like a physical representation of, like, owning the blackness and, like, I actually don't give a fuck about your white supremacist and Eurocentric ideals.
0: Yeah. So what are some That's ways... Way. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Um, what are some ways that you, like, running your business, for example, like, what are some ways that you decolonize that?
1: Yeah, my business partner and I often talk about, like, our schedule, actually, decolonizing our schedule. And it's, like, a, again, it's, like, a tangible way, but... Um, Well, first of all, we like to look at where are we perpetuating capitalist structures of how a business runs um, and how are we perpetuating like the way that we run. So when you think about like very colonized ways of thinking, it's like very fast growth. Like how do we grow, 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 expand, but you don't honor the process and the journey of what that takes. Mm -hmm. And again, the profit over the people. So for us, when we actually think of it in high productivity, oh my God, deadlines, high productivity, um, the, the feeling of no rest, like you kind of have to be in this constant adrenaline. And so for us coming from the ad agency world, that very much carried over in the beginning of like, you, you kind of recreate the structures that you've been in for a long time. So we noticed that like, oh my God, we are putting back-to-back calls, no rest, staying up late. That doesn't work. That actually creates the same type of energy that we just were trying to heal from. So we are very intentional about, we only take this amount of calls per day. We only take the, or we're working on, we only take X amount of clients. Um, It's about the depth of work with those clients versus like, okay, we're gonna do a three month project. It's gonna be this, this, and this, and you're gonna get this outcome, this outcome, and this outcome. Being pro-black, being pro-people of color, is a lifetime work because we are so ingrained to not be that way so to promise some amount of like outcome in some x amount of time is continue colonized thinking you just got to be realistic like what are you actually promising and so we had to really look at like what does productivity look like how do we include rest like deep rest into our schedules on a daily basis and it's it's been hard i'm not gonna lie because you know, if you have an hour in your day, you're like, I don't really have anything to do. Your body, my body at least has gone into fight, flight, or freeze. I'm like, oh my God, I'm doing something wrong. I should be doing, I gotta be productive. So that's kind of the ways that we're looking at making sure we're decolonized the way that um, other facilitators and coaches within Safe Space are also looking at like, how are you getting rest? And how are we growing in a way that feels good versus like expansion, 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 conquer, 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 which
0: is like the hella colonized. I'm like just sitting here listening to you talk and like almost about to start crying because like you're freaking amazing. And I hope you know that, but like, I always thought you were awesome when we met, but it's so cool. And you're, you're quite a bit younger than me. I'm 43. I feel like you're like maybe early thirties somewhere. Cause I feel like 31. You're, I just turned 31. Um, happy birthday. Um, when we met you were in your twenties and it's like, how the hell is anyone that awesome this young? Like I was an idiot for I mean I went to med school so I like people would be like oh she's so accomplished but I knew nothing about the world, you know? And it's just like I'm just so like blown away by like I want to I want I mean we we do have to end this in, in a couple minutes but like I want to talk to you all day and obviously you have <laughs> what I want isn't what you have time for or space for but like I could keep going for like hours and just learn from you and soak it all up. So um Thank you for that. Um, let's end with something that you and I discussed before, before the uh, show started. Um, do you have any resources for the people listening, Bianca? <laughs> this is a planted question. This is a planted question. Um, so my boundary and my truth is
1: that I don't want to go into that <laughs> question because um, that's what Google's for. And I get that question. And, and you know, in the beginning of this whole racial reckoning. I got that question a lot from white people and I hadn't, I didn't have strong enough boundaries around it. But when I finally was like, Ooh, that's a bound, that is a boundary question. Yeah. Um, I realized it was like, that's, um, that's a freeze response from white people. It's also lazy because as you and I talked about, there's over 400 years of articles, books. Now we have podcasts like this one. We have social media, we have movies, we have TV shows, we have speeches, we have events, there's workshops. And yet these traumatic events happen, white people freak the fuck out. Oh my God, I didn't know it was this bad. Oh my God, what do we do? Black people, we're listening now, what do we do? Black people, um, please reference bell hooks. Countless other people who have done this work, Ibram Kendi, anyone, 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 anyone who has been writing about this, talking about this for fucking centuries. Here it is, white people, okay, we're listening, we got it. And then there's another event that happens, another murder that we see on TV. White people, black people, what do we do? We're listening, what do we do? That's called laziness because we told you what to do. The world has been saying what to do for centuries so when i hear that question i'm like that my friends is laziness and i'm not going to be a part of it and um i get that it can be overwhelming but black people have been overwhelmed for a really long time and we've had to navigate and figure it out so i'm gonna just let you figure it out you got this white people i know you
0: got it i love that because you know i asked you like is there anything you don't want to talk about and that's the one thing you said is that and i'm like let's talk about that your response because i think that's so important and you know if you wanted to buy a new car or you wanted something that's you know important to you if you wanted to get a new job you're going to research the f out of it totally research the f out of this and and do your own work so um people like other white people maybe that are in your circle like what have you learned or like
1: what things have resonated with you and you know just don't ask black people please (laughs) (laughs) 10 top 10 top black authors, you know, and like start there. That's yeah. another thing. Make sure you always start with black pe- like with people who have lived experience or lived knowledge.
0: Don't don't go the route of reading white fragility. Please don't support black people. Yes. I, I will say, well, it was like it's a whole other conversation. I I did read it. Oh, I, I read it too. I feel like, and I read it actually fairly recently. There are some times where it's just a little annoying, but I feel like I did learn from it. And, and it's, yes, it's not giving money, but I, I've heard that she does give a lot of her money to black organizations um, and, and does donate a lot. Um, so that's maybe a different, a different conversation for me to we'll do a whole podcast on white fragility. But yes, totally. And in, in, in the, there are things to be learned from everybody, but when you're trying to, don't tax don't the live energy of Black people, but please do resource their work that they have created for this very purpose that they can then get paid for, uh, which is the way it should be. Um, So gosh, Bianca, thank you. So much love to do. For those of who are listening, I'm giving her a hand heart right now. She's giving it back, which is awesome. Um, Thank you so much for taking this time to talk with me and um, thanks for all the work that you do. Thank you, Jill.